Ozzert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the OzCert podcast, Share Today, Save Tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by Sasenka Abasuria from the University of Queensland, who talks to about how he's made cybersecurity governance sexy and why he sees people as four different types of birds. I'm then joined by the amazing Jasmine Woolley, a young and proud First Nations woman who talks to us about what we can learn from Indigenous culture and apply into the world of cybersecurity. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about your area of expertise is around strategy, policy and governance. And for information security professionals, they're often the things that get in the way of doing security. You've been tasked with an almost what would seem like an impossible job of bringing a university on a journey towards making security a part of its culture and changing user behavior. Mm. Can you talk about how you've gone through that journey? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really good question. And I think... Sort of to respond to that first comment, governance is not sexy. No one cares about governance. So let's get that straight. And that's why I never focus on the governance aspect of it. If I just use data analytics for as an example, everyone loves a dashboard. Everyone wants a dashboard these days. But if we you know, present people with a dashboard and we only have 60% confidence in that data, if, you, if you're comfortable enough to make a decision on that, great. If you're not, then let's look at data governance. What can we do to change, you know, change these things for you? And the same applies for security. I like to obviously sell us as sort of an enabling governance function. How can we best support you? How do we, how do we help you with, with I wouldn't say restrictions, but I, or, or you know, things that stop you from doing it. How can we give you better boundaries to work within? I think that's how I like to position our team in the University of Queensland. I think we've had great success with it. I think it, the other secret ingredient is actually we're not technical people. And, and therefore, we, we, we rely more on our change and communication skills to take people on the journey. And that, that has worked well for us. That's really interesting because, I mean, I've seen some really great user education programs that have come from some organizations where they have people dress up as superheroes and run around the office and do all that sort of stuff. And you see these really great programs to try to make security part of the culture mm. and bring it into the conversation. But when you've talked about you've, you've only got a small team of eight people mm. and universities are huge, sprawling metropolises almost where you've got the tens of thousands of people impacted by the decisions and activities you undertake. Can you talk about some of the specific tactics and things you've mm. done to actually engage such a broad community and take them on that journey? Yeah, absolutely. I think first, first of all, I think not many people agree that eight people is a, is a, is a big t- uh, is a is a big team. I I'm think sorry, it's right, a very small, small team. It's a, well, so yeah. So I mean, yeah, a lot of people actually, a lot of other organisations, especially university, are struggling to get even four people to to do what we do. So I think it's sort of reflective of the some of the work we've done. And I'll, and I'll I'll answer the second part of the question now. You know these superheroes things and all the themes. They're great and and they work for some people. I'm very big on the whole stakeholder analysis. And I always use the, the four birds personality test approach. So you may be familiar with, you're either a dove, love and kind, you're either an owl, very analytical, you're an eagle, very decisive, and some might be a peacock, 
very showy and outgoing. Some think that I'm uh, maybe a bit of a peacock. But that helps me to, to determine who I'm speaking to. And I always have, uh, you know, for the same topic, I'm not getting six different slide decks. So depending on who my audience is, whether it's the chief operating officer or an admin officer, I have a slide deck ready that's, that's sort of tailored to their needs, adapted to their language. So sure, it could be superheroes in one version, but it could be very boring facts, figures, and return on investment statistics in the other slide deck. And I think that's what has really helped us. It, we've tailored the approach to the people that we're speaking to. So the traditional approach to this sort of stuff is to get a bunch of super nerds who understand information security and they're specialists in that field. Mm -hmm. And then you get a bunch of risk people who are very, you know, into the analysis of risks mm. and mitigation strategies and all that sort of stuff. And you throw those people together. Mm. And that's typically the kind of team that a lot of organizations try to put together. You've gone quite a different tack with the mm. skills that you've brought in. Can you talk about what, what are the skills you've brought into that team? It's a good mix. We are a very diverse team. We've got, not only, we've got more females than males in our different cultures, different sexual orientations everything. When I mean diverse, we are the example of a diverse team, but it also reflects in our skills. One technical person. We have a data architect. That's the only technical person. We've got a vet in our team, but her skills translate very well in data ethics and all of those things. We've got a journalist who is amazing in content writing in, in storytelling. We've got a change professional who's excellent in taking people on the journey. And I think that is the difference. I think we are a bunch of very passionate people who are there to solve a problem. And in my opinion, if you want to solve a problem, you need to listen and learn. What are those pain points in the organization? What are the challenges? And listen to the experts. UQ is full of experts, not just our professional staff that are already there, but full of academics. We like to engage with these people, learn from them, apply their lessons learned and, and their knowledge into our organization. I think that has worked really well for us. One of the challenges at the start of this is identifying what is good governance? Oh, that's a very deep question. <laughs> what is good governance? I think an enabling governance function, not a governance function that's an ivory tower telling people what to do, pretending to be in a master of all and, and know everything. I think good governance is actually being able to listen. We, again, you know, we are in an IT department at UQ where we're full of talent full of expertise. Those are the people eventually solving the problem. We just need more, more a couple of people like us that, that listen to them, try and understand where their problems are and help them on their journey, create some standardization. So if one team is doing something excellent, let's try and standardize that for the rest of the teams. But another team might be excelling in a different area. Let's learn from that and apply it consistently everywhere else. I think that's what it is, an enabling governance function. Because often people think about governance and compliance and they kind of throw those two things in yeah. together yeah, yeah. and they, they kind of see it as a prism. Yeah. And they say, well, it's all the things I'm not allowed to do yeah. in a sense. Yeah. You know, if I've done this, if I've ticked this box, it means we can't do these other things. Yeah. You've, you're trying to flip that around. You keep talking about an enabling governance. Yeah. Can you give me a practical example of something that some people would look at as governance, but mm. you see as an enabler? I think, I think the whole beauty of this is it's actually knowledge to help you along. Look at the, the Privacy Act or the GDPR, all of those legislations. So things we need to comply with. Why is it always such a, it's, it's so annoying, it's, it's going to stop me from doing what I want to do? It's often because we actually don't understand our obligations well enough. 
we're a bunch of people that, again, we try to understand the legislation, try to actually understand what are the requirements. And let's, let's be clear here, it's minimum expectations. It's not often enough. We should actually be doing more. But we're trying to interpret those things and then translate those into not as, you know, you people always talk about carrot and stick. It's not a stick. It's a boundary. It's more of a fence. What is the area we should be operating in? And, and that's, I think, how we've made it a little bit more sexy. <laughs> so it's interesting because we talk about policy and governance yep. and whether we call it a prison or some rails that we can operate along safely yep. or, you know, an envelope within within which we can do things in a in a way that's not going to put the organization at risk. That then has to feed into strategy somehow. Absolutely. So how do you link the work you do in governance and policy mm. back into the university's broader strategies? I think I'm going to give you a very boring answer. I've got a bit of a, a passion for enterprise architecture on the side as well. And as an enterprise architect, we always like to see where we're at now and where do we want to be in another two years, three years, five years. And what really helps with those things is doing a simple maturity assessment. Look at where we're at now. What are the pain points and challenges? Where do we need to be from a compliance point of view, from a innovation point of view, a supporting, enabling point of view? What are those gaps that we need to address? And those maturity assessments also help us in that prioritizing of those efforts, right? So creating that roadmap. But again, I think one of the great successes we've had with the you know data governance program, for example, is that executive buy-in. They know what we're doing. We've taken them on the journey. The provost, essentially your second in charge of our organization, is our executive sponsor. He's bought, in, uh, he's bought into this very early. Our steering committee consists of, it's a star-studded lineup. It's all the senior executives of the university. They open the doors for us. Because it starts at a higher level, they will tell their teams that this is important. We get access to those people. We present to their teams. And that's how we bring the university on the journey. And that's how our work is reflected in the strategy as well. So it's interesting because you talk about that and the, the, the boring way of calling it is almost a bit like gap analysis. Is mm-hmm. Where are we now? Where do we want to be Very much is, at yeah. some point in the future? How do we overcome that deficit or gap? Or yeah. how do we make that move? But at the end of 2019, I imagine that you would have had a, a plan or a strategy that's, that looked one way. Yeah. And then by April 2020... I imagine a lot of that would have just gone out the window in some ways. Can you talk to me a little bit? Did you have to adapt the governance Mm. and policy framework Mm. quickly to adapt to a new world? Because while universities universities are traditionally seen as fairly static organizations, Mm -hmm. whereas commercial organizations today... You know, they all have disruption as their middle name. So they're operating in a different, you know, working environment. How can you translate what you've been talking about into environments that are probably moving more rapidly and transitioning more rapidly? Well, I think think the the pandemic was an excellent example of how we were fairly agile in our approach as well, agile with maybe the small A. We lost a lot of money. Obviously, universities heavily, especially our university, heavily depend on international students where most of our revenue comes from. So, you know, when COVID-19 came along, that impacted our budget quite a bit and we lost quite a bit of money. We, I always like to say, for every organization, our data governance, our security goals, our vision are very similar. But the way you achieve them, the way you get there, will always be different for every organization. So when we lost a lot of funding, we couldn't do a lot of the things that we wanted to do. So we started thinking. We went back and said, okay, cool. How can we quickly still add value without it costing money? So we fast-tracked an idea of developing a data website for the university, data.uq.edu.au. 
That's where all of our resources are. That's where all of our materials are. It's all public for everyone to look at. We fast track that at an enormous value, especially when everyone started working from home and everyone started looking, okay, where should I store things online? What should I be using? All of a sudden we had a website up fairly quickly that, that now provided information. Same goes to another project we quickly brought in was the sensitivity labels in Office 365. Now you would think that enabling these security classification labels is fairly easy, but if you try and do that for an organization like in the University of Queensland, it actually takes a bit of effort. That didn't cost us money though. It just took you know a bit more time from our resource that we already had. So we started bringing in these efforts. We were, we were still able to provide value and people saw that. And then when we were starting to recover slowly, guess who got the funding that we needed to continue our program? And that was us because we were continuously able to respond. Yes, we had to deviate off that roadmap a little, but that vision was still the same. The objective was still the same. The way we got there was just a little bit different. And I guess that's one of those things that organizations often mistake the what and the how and the why mm. and don't separate those things exactly sufficiently. Right. And they look at their how and what and yep. think it's their why. Yeah. Whereas you sit there and said, well, the reason we want to do things is to improve governance. Yeah. A way we can do that is to make it easier for people to know where data is stored, where they should put things and where to find things. Yeah which is important. And then you talked about data classification, which is the most boring thing you can ever get involved in doing. <laughs> but it is super, super important it's if so you're important. dealing with you know, important intellectual property. Um, Absolutely. So I've been able to put all that together and then go, here is, the value is protecting our assets. Because ultimately in universities, the most valuable asset you've got is the stuff that comes out of people's brains. Absolutely. So I've been able to put all that together. That's really, really powerful. So. I guess one thing that I wanted to ask you is we've talked about, we've talked around security mm -hmm. a little bit here and because you're involved in governance and strategy and those sorts of frameworks, it could be easy for the technology to overtake and become a bit all encompassing mm -hmm. when people say, oh, we can fix that. We'll buy an app for that. You know, there's, there's probably an app for everything. <laughs> so how do you work out what the best approaches are? And then when you start to talk to the security guys, how do you talk to them about what the right level of security is mm. to achieve those governance goals rather than all the security? You know, yeah. how much security is enough? I love this question because I'm very passionate about this. And for me, it's quite simple. I think it's often three questions. It's what are we ultimately protecting? And in my, in my opinion, that's data, especially for the university. Then it's how do we determine how many security controls? And I, and I think we should use data to determine that. So very a quick example, if you have data that's all publicly available on your website, you probably don't need to secure that. You don't need to gold plate that because people already have access that, to that. Of course, you still need to maintain the integrity. You need to make sure it's available, it's the uptime. Hmm. So there are still controls that you'll be applying, but you probably don't need to do that to very sensitive COVID-19 vaccine research that is happening for, at the University of Queensland as well. Hmm. That is, those are the protected data sets that we actually need to spend a little bit more time, effort and money on protecting those data sets. So I firmly believe in using, uh, determining the value of the data, and I use security classification as an example here, to drive what the security controls are that we're applying. So that's how I like to look at it. So our last thing that we're doing with everyone this year through the podcast is asking them who their cybersecurity heroes are or people that have been particularly influential in their careers as mentors or supporters. Mm. So it's a great opportunity for you to give a shout out to people that have been really influential or important to you. They may not even know that they've been that influential for you, 
But if, if there's any people you want to give a shout out to? Look, I actually, I'm going to give the very boring answer. I think it literally, I'm inspired and motivated by my colleagues every day. I'm extremely blessed with a very talented team. They are the ones that, 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 that have become the experts in this space just because of their passion. But if, if I had to pick one person to give a shout out, not just because I'm working for him, but Dr. David Stockdale, director of Offset, I'd idolize him. He is someone that, you know, took me in, in his team when I was quite young. He believed in the youngsters. If you looked at his team back in the day, it was all youngsters. He gave us an, a, a very good opportunity, equal opportunities. And it's someone that always said security is everyone's problem. So whether you're an infrastructure team, data team, doesn't matter, application team, security is everyone's problem. And I think he's someone who has extremely motivated me and I, I look up to greatly. That's great. Thanks very much for your time today, Sasenka. Thank you, Anthony. And now it's over to Jasmine as we chat about Indigenous culture and cybersecurity. How are you doing today, Jasmine? I'm great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So as a First Nations person working in cybersecurity, I imagine there aren't that many First Nations people working in cybersecurity. How did you actually come into that career? Yeah, so I recently finished a Bachelor of International Relations, majoring in Language and Culture at Bond University. And I was really interested in cybersecurity. So I went from doing non-cybersecurity items to wanting to get into the industry. And so I was really fortunate to fall into women in IT mentoring. And I applied for something called Project Friedman. Now, Project Friedman was choosing one of 20 Australian women to get public speaking training to speak at a cybersecurity conference. And... I didn't think I would get accepted, but here we are now. Mm -hmm. And I was really fortunate to get professional mentoring from a company called Batum Solutions. Batum Solutions uses their cultural wisdom to help with their business. And they took a chance on me. And they helped me get a job at Trustwave. And now I'm a GRC cybersecurity advisor. And that's how I sort of fell into the industry. Wow, that's a really interesting journey. And it's, it's interesting because a lot of cyber people come from very diverse backgrounds, but you've come from like international relations with an interest in cyber to getting this background in cyber and then working with Batum mm. and being mentored through them and now having this GRC job at Trustwave. How is it that you bring your cultural values into that? Because obviously as a First Nations, like your culture is deeply embedded in everything that you do. Yeah. Like how do you bring that into a, into a field which is dare I say it, a little bit more sterile. Yes, <laughs> I like that you said that. I'm currently doing a Master's of National Security Policy Studies. And one of the first quotes I heard in the degree was, security is male, pale and stale. And it stuck with me because that's an issue. And we have to overcome that. And so the, the perspective that I bring as a proud First Nations woman is that I can challenge the traditional concepts that have dominated our industry for far too long. And so I realised as I started working in this industry that the things that I was doing was so different to what others were doing. And it was just so innate to me that I didn't even think about it. But so can you give me an example of something like yeah. that? So for example, we grow up through storytelling and yarning. So that's how we learn. Yarning is storytelling. And... That's how I retain information. I can have it in conversations like this. Whereas in this role in cybersecurity, it was very much talk, talk, talk to, down to you and you don't get the chance to respond back all the time. And 
that makes it harder for me to learn. If I can't have that two-way communication and learn through, you know, examples or just basic cultural storytelling, it misses the part of the puzzle that we need in cybersecurity. So that's really interesting because often like cyber, it's the history of cyber has been highly technical Mm. and it's been about, you know, it's a very ones and zeros binary world and, you know, it's all about tools and technology and, you know, bad guy does this, therefore we'll write an app or build an appliance to do that, to counter it, that sort of thing. So it tends to be very fact-driven and not colourful. And how do you bring colour to those stories? Like, how do you actually bring life into... If someone says, I've just been breached, yeah. how do you bring life to that story so that you can actually change the behaviour around it? I think one of the... There's a point you raised there about the bad guys. And... What really interests me is that as a culture, we actually, like as Indigenous culture, we align more with how the bad guys think. You know, I think in our cybersecurity, and let me explain that, in our cybersecurity world in Australia, we work nine to five or, you know, if you don't have the qualification, then you can't get the job sort of thing. That's not how the bad guys think. The bad guys work together as a team. That's what we need to do here. So when we have a breach, like a client has a breach or whatever it may be, whatever the threat is, we need to adopt what we call in Indigenous culture a village mentality. That's what the bad guys have. And I think it's unfortunate, but we've sort of lost our way in doing that on the good good guy side of cybersecurity. I don't think we have adopted that team mentality to the level that it could be at. And so to me, as a proud Indigenous woman, when a threat happens, when somebody is breached, I can go, hey, guys, let's step back for a second. Let's think about this. You have, like my my colleagues, you have XYZ responsibility. You have XYZ responsibility, the other person. Let's do our part. And then we can go back to the client and we can try and help solve this. But let's let's prepare. Let's be situationally aware. Just take a step back for a moment. I think that's important. So when you talk about that village mentality, and we often talk about the adversaries that we're facing, they're often in cooperative groups. And it doesn't matter where they are in the world, but they'll, you know, someone will find the vulnerability, someone will write the exploit, someone will have the bot farm to deploy the exploit, mm. someone will have the place to, you know, the clearinghouse for the, for the Bitcoin that they've collected along the way. You know, they'll have all these different people within the village who've got their specialisations in, the, in this global village that do stuff. Mm. But when we try to face them down, we have a very small team who doesn't communicate with the outside world typically. They kind of try to be Swiss Army knives and Mm -hmm. DIY the whole thing themselves. How do you build that awareness of needing to think more broadly? And that's an issue. I think, for me, the situational awareness piece of that, when I say situational awareness, it's just being aware of what's happening around us. Now, I'm not saying that because you're situationally aware, you're not going to be able to stop all the problems and we're going to be able to solve everything. But we can acknowledge that they're going to happen and someday and we can go, all right, how can we bounce back from that? And that takes a lot. That takes a big step in a different direction to what we've usually done. I think it's this, there's something really unique in being able to step back from the situation and watch. Really important. So that's been my experience of 
of significant incidents and whether they're cyber incidents or other sorts of outages is that typically the urge to rush in and do something almost always makes it worse before it gets better. Mm -hmm. Is that been your observation and something that you've seen out there in the field? Yeah, definitely. So I, I've worked in counterterrorism as an intern for six months and I, I was on a few pieces of other work happening that was quite um, severe to national security. And as somebody who works in security policy, so I'm focusing on cyber warfare and I'm doing my PhD one day on applying Indigenous philosophy to cyber security strategies too many instances for my liking where we've seen people act irrationally without thinking we need that indigenous wisdom there to be like okay what are all the factors in this situation first and how is if we take this solution of solving it how is that going to impact all the other elements that need to be considered in this situation and in that way i kind of think of it as a bit of an ecosystem i think that cyber policy impacts trade I think that that in turn impacts disaster and emergency response, social well-being, healthcare. So we have to be really careful as an industry about our place and where we sit. So when you, you, you've mentioned this thing, Indigenous wisdom, a couple of times and you've talked about that. I'm going to ask you to do the impossible and tell me what that really is. I had to think about this a lot too. So I was really fortunate to get into contact with somebody who's doing First Nations philosophy in the international relations world. And she is a proud Aboriginal woman and she's currently a doctor as well, which is amazing. And I went to her for how, how do we describe it? And to me, she explained it that there's systems, rules and obligations. So this is how we live our life. Everything we do is in accordance to systems, rules and obligations. And then you have cultural law. So that's law, L-O-R-E, which has a European connotation of fairy tales, but that cultural law to us is how we live our day-to-day lives. Is that like a moral code or an ethical code? Moral and ethical code. It's that we have an ethical and moral wisdom. We have something we call autonomous regard, which is relationships and values for relationships and respecting the rights of everybody and adaptability. And now that's all under cultural law. And for example, if somebody broke a cultural law, whether that be like for example, no stealing, then there's ramifications for that. And that, that's similar in a way to law, L-A-W. But mm. law, L-O-R-E, works in accordance with law, L-A-W, but there's a cultural element. And is the way that that's shared through yarning and storytelling? Yeah, it's, it's inherent, you know, passed down from generation to generation for the past 65,000 years. And can you imagine harnessing the knowledge of people who have been doing this for the past 65,000 years. And I think it's I think it's okay to say that as an industry, cybersecurity, we are young. We are young and we are still finding our way. And I think there's no better way than to harness the knowledge of people who have been doing it for the past 65,000 years and apply it. I think that's an asset. So in a practical sense, mm. like I think we I feel like we've had a pretty good look now at what it kind of all means and what indigenous wisdom means and how you know i think we've had like a very tiny snapshot you know it's almost like the top half a percent of the bit of the iceberg sticking up above the water to kind of get a bit of a a feel for what we're talking about here how do you take that into 
a pale male and stale world where you're dealing with a corporate entity that doesn't have that that set of values and brings a very different set of values how do you kind of help them move i mean i I don't imagine you can actually completely turn their titanic or move them around but how do you just get them to slightly do a slight course correction to start that journey the first thing is i like to think of all of this as a combination approach so i i don't want to go into a business business and say hey let's let's switch everything all the way up and i want you to ignore your western knowledge like I think we can benefit from utilising what we have learnt in Western hierarchy and Western ways of living and use a combination approach and go, okay, let's also apply Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander philosophy to that and let's see what we get. You could also apply any cultural wisdom to that. So in the bigger picture, to me, it's about encouraging organisations at a base level to be like, enable people of all cultures to have a seat at the table. I think it's an issue that we don't. At a base level, I think cultures and everybody of every culture should have a seat at the security table. So when you say that, though, Mm -hmm. because cyber has been, for the last few years at least, has spoken about Mm. its quest for greater diversity and it's spoken about that a lot. Has, Has the action matched the speaking about it? Or is that a journey that's like, they on that way? Like, if you're going to tell this story, tell this, mm. if you're imagining now you're at the other end of your career and you've retired and you're, you know, at home and you've got the rest of your, uh, the rest of your people with you and you're yarning about mm. it, what story do you think you're going to be able to tell them that, you know, we've just, this is the beginning or? I think we're making considerable progress. I The issue... Everything comes down to intention. So if you as an organisation, and I've had people ask me, but I'm worried I'm doing the wrong thing. If you have the right intentions, then that's okay. If you've done the research, you've done everything in your power to do it to the best possible standard, then your heart's in the right place. So that's that's a great start. And I think there are absolutely companies in cybersecurity that recognise the, recognize the need for diversity and talent. And so the base level, their intentions are in the right place. The thing that I have an issue with, and I I speak purely for myself here, is when we see companies be like, oh, we're going to hire interns, we're going to hire grads. Why only interns and grads? Of different cultures, I mean. And why uni students? Now, I see wanting to hire people of all different cultures, but why can't we put a person of who may not have a qualification or certification yet into a full-time role. I think it doesn't just have to be an internship that's free or lower paid. So you think it's not about making up the numbers, but it's actually about making up true representation. True representation at all levels of the organisation because that is where we go wrong. And I really want to encourage people to think, okay, why, why only that role? Why are we only trying to get people? And I've seen it. They'll, they'll be like, oh, well, we want to hire XYZ amount of interns. Why interns? Why only interns? Why not other roles? That's something that needs to be addressed. But I think in the bigger picture, encouraging uni students and having career conversations with them that are actually meaningful and being like, hey, you know, if you don't have a specific certification, that's okay. But also let's take away 
sorry, I'm going to backtrack. Let's take away the whole focus on uni students. There are Aboriginal kids out there who know eight different languages. Hmm. That can be used for coding. Now, are they going to have the qualification or the certification? No. But I can tell you right now, if I was a business owner and I had two people come up to me and person A was a kid who just happened to be Indigenous or just happened to know eight languages and can learn coding really quick versus person B who might have the qualification or the certification but their heart's not really in it, I can see as a business owner I'm going to get a better return on investment from person A and that person is going to be an asset to me. And yeah, I might have to pay 15 grand to get the certification for that person, but that's okay because that makes a difference to community, to mob, to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community and it makes a difference to our industry. Mm. That is more beneficial than person A and... That's something I think we need to harness more. So you think that's that's one of the challenges is getting people to just think a bit bigger? Like don't think about filling the vacancy mm. you've got now. Think about the vacancy you will have for the next five years or whatever. And then think about the impact on that person mm. within their broader community. You know, it, it's that thing, you know, if employing a single mother or employing a First Nations person or employing someone who doesn't fit the traditional mould of what you're looking for can make a massive social, cultural and business difference. You can you can win at all of these things if you're a bit smarter and think a bit more broadly. Yes, and I think the issue is that some people fall in the trap of, oh, we just need to hire people to tick the box and tick the diversity box. No, 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 no. Let's pull back for a second. And it's I have seen too much in this industry, oh, but you don't have the qualification, you don't have the certification, you're not suitable to this role. No. I strongly disagree with that because that's not going. To, that's not long-term sustainable. We need people that can adapt and learn quickly, and that is something very inherent in Indigenous cultures and cultures that are marginalised in cybersecurity at the moment. So I think we need to step back and be like, okay, let's reevaluate and go from there. That's awesome. Thank you. And I think yeah, like there is just so much. You know, I mean, I I come from a, a, a European culture. Mm. Not, an Australian, not a traditional Australian culture. And I look at the, the last, you know, 100 years of migra- immigration into Australia and we've been able to bring a lot of that stuff in over the last 100 years or so. But we seem to be slow. We seem to be good at bringing in the stuff that's 100 years old, but we don't seem to be very good at bringing in the stuff that's 50, 50 or 60 or 70,000 years old. Yes, and <laughs> there's a really interesting... I was reading this really interesting book. It was just published a couple of months ago and it's by a security expert. His name's Alan Bem. He says, Australia uses conventional methods of thinking to solve non-conventional problems. Now, what worked for us 100 years ago might no longer work. And I'm not saying every single thing from 65,000 years is going to work. But also, Aboriginal people were trading with China for thousands of years. Hmm. And it worked. And we maintained it. And we actually have a pretty respectful relationship culturally between the two and the Pacific Islands. And it was really interesting. I looked at the Pacific Islands as a case study and it actually found that Pacific Islanders want more relations with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So if you're going into an engagement with the Pacific Islands, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are going to be the number one resource Mm. and asset in that cyber engagement. 
And what I find quite beautiful is that I actually had some interaction with people from the Pacific Islands. Even though our security situation is in crisis, they were still reaching out to me being like, oh my God, this is amazing. Thank you for having this conversation. And that in itself, I think is beautiful. I really do. That's great. We're asking everyone who's participating in this year's series of the podcast to name someone that's been a significant mentor or a cybersecurity superhero for them. And we've had some really interesting responses. Some of the people that we've heard of are people we would never hear of otherwise, but that have been incredibly influential in people's careers without themselves being out there in the spotlight. So is there anyone you want to kind of pop up there and say, this is someone who's been really influential? You can name as many people as you like, Jasmine. (laughs) Really good question. There are two people who have changed, and I'll, I'll say this, they have changed my life. They helped me get a job in cybersecurity. They took a chance on a young 19-year-old, because I'm 19 when I entered cybersecurity. They took a chance and they believed in me. And that is Pip Jenkinson and Jack Reese at Batum Solutions. They are the co-founders of Batum. Jack Reese has just been nominated for a Supply Nation Award, and Batum has been nominated for a Supply Nation Award. And that's really special because they actively want to make a difference and they took a chance on me and here I am now, not six months into working into cybersecurity, I'm making connections and it honestly, they changed my life and I'll happily say that. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jasmine. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the AusCert podcast. Special thanks today to Sasinka and Jasmine. We'll be back next month with the next episode of this season with more guests and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to learn more about AusCert, be sure to visit auscert.org.au.